So it's great to be here together today. You know, as we've been going through the spring, we've been walking through the book of Matthew and looking at stories. And sometimes they're stories about Jesus. Sometimes they're stories that Jesus tells. And we're going to look at one in particular that Jesus tells in Matthew 25 today. Last, The last couple of weeks, we've been exploring what Jesus has said in Matthew 24 about the end. And really, this first parable in Matthew 25 just continues on with that. It's traditionally been called the parable of the ten virgins. And let me just say up front that this is not a parable that is about moral purity. Uh, these ten virgins are actually just ten unmarried women who are part of a wedding feast. And they've been invited to be there. And then there are five foolish ones and five wise ones. So we'll look at that together. We're going to look at this passage looking at three different thoughts. Now, the first is that God is a reluctant judge. We see him waiting. He's a reluctant judge. Second, the end will come definitely. It will come certainly, and it will come publicly. And then third, we need to be prepared for his coming. So we're going to read that story together, but before we do that, why don't we just pause for a word of prayer together? Father, we need so much to have you with us as we read these words, and we need your spirit to be active in our lives because uh, we all stray. Uh, All of us who are here, all of us that are in this world, this preacher, as he preaches. So we ask, Father, that your spirit would guide our hearts and our minds to learn the things that you would have us learn and, and to bring us closer to you, to bring us into personal relationship with you. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So you may want to follow along either on a device that you have or in a Bible, or it will also be on the screens up here. And this is what Jesus says in Matthew 25. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. When the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight, there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom! Come out to meet him! Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, Go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. So there is a story that Tony Campola told in a book that I read 35 years ago, and I couldn't find the book this week to tell you which one it was. But it's about a young preacher who succeeds a very well-beloved older preacher in a particular congregation. And as he was trying to negotiate this relationship with this new congregation, uh, he realized it wasn't really going very well. 
So he asked one of the elders to come in and meet with him. And he said to the elder, uh, I just don't feel like I'm really connecting with the congregation. What do you think is wrong? And the elder said, well, all you preach is repent or you'll all go to hell. And uh, the younger preacher uh, looked at him and said, well, what, what did the other preacher preach? And he said, well, the other preacher preached, you should all repent or you'll all go to hell. But he said it with tears in his eyes. God is, in a sense, a judge with tears in his eyes. He's reluctant to judge. God cannot overlook our sins. It's not that he doesn't want to extend mercy to us. It's that he actually can't in his holiness, in the same way that he can't lie, in the same way that God can't fail to keep his promises. We can't be in his presence if we're not holy. Nothing can approach the sun because as soon as it gets close enough, it's just going to burn up. Unless there's some kind of protection that we don't even know about today, we would burn up if we got too close. Likewise, our sin always separates us from God despite that we carry his image. We need protection in his holiness. And that's exactly what the gospel is all about. Jesus provides us his righteousness so that we might be able to love God and he might be able to accept us and we would enjoy him forever. The death of Jesus protects us. Every human being needs protection. Apart from God's provision of grace in Jesus, we would all be separated from him for eternity, shut out from his presence. When we think of divine judgment, we rightly celebrate God's justice and righteousness. We want, because we see injustice in the world and we see hate in the world and we see chaos in the world, we want God to come back to set everything right. That's the way we want it to happen. And his promise is that he will put everything right and destroy everything that is not right. Sometimes we even think, oh, we wish... Uh, that he would come back now. We experience so much pain and suffering in our lives. But God has told us that he waits for our advantage. God doesn't rejoice in the judgment that he brings. Ezekiel 33.11 says this, Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? And then Jesus goes on to tell us in this passage that, or and other passages, that it doesn't happen right away. God judges, but there is a reluctance born of mercy on those who bear his image. And so he says in 1 Peter 3, these words, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that the Lord, with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The context of this passage is actually Jesus' return and the final judgment. That's what Peter is talking about in his passage. But God is holding off He's waiting for his people to repent and come to faith. 
Sometimes we wonder why, with all the pain and brokenness in the world, that God doesn't just completely finish it now. Why go through all the pain, we think? But there are reasons that he waits. It's actually for our good that he waits. There are things that we would never learn were it not for suffering or pain or temptation in our lives. We would never learn endurance. We would never learn perseverance. We would never learn many other things that create a, a character in us that is more like Jesus. We would never understand God's steadfast love and faithfulness if there were no pain and brokenness in this world. If there were no sin, we wouldn't even know all of the depths of God himself. And so he waits. He waits for people to come to faith. He waits for us to learn of his glory, to learn who he is, and to repent of worshiping the things of this world and to love him only. His waiting is for our good. This is really the context of all of Matthew 24 and 25. You can think of the different stories that are there. Jesus talks about the fig tree and he says, you know, we wait for the fig tree, for, their, for its buds to swell so that we know that the summer is here, that the next age, the next season is coming. He talks about the wise and foolish servants in Matthew 24, verses 45 to 51, where the master goes away. And then there's the servants who are, have responsibility to care for the other servants, and they treat that differently. But in the meantime, they need to wait. Then there's the parable of the ten virgins, which we're reading this morning, where there is a, a bridegroom that we're waiting for the bridegroom to come. And the parable of the talents follows this one. And again, the master goes away, and the servants are responsible for the things that God has given them. Even as far back as Matthew 20, uh, verses 33 to 41, Jesus tells the parable of the tenants in the vineyard. And again, the owner of the vineyard is far away, and there's a period before he comes back again. No one knows the day or the hour, Jesus says. In fact, he says this numerous times. In verse 24, he says it in verse 36, in 42, and 50. And in Matthew 25, he says it at the end of our parable that we're reading today. We are waiting for Jesus' return. We may not know the day or the hour, but we know that there's going to be a gap between the time that Jesus is crucified on the cross and he raises from the dead and then is ascended to heaven. There's going to be time between then and when he returns to bring consummation of all things. Jesus leaves, and we're waiting for that master. We're waiting for that bridegroom to come back. So what is this parable about? Well, there is a certain end. There is a certain end. The wedding feast is often a symbol in Scripture of the time that Jesus brings in at the end of time. We see it in the book of Revelation. And we see it here as well. So that when the kingdom is completed, that's when the wedding feast takes place. Part of the reason the story is a little odd to us, I even had a discussion after the first service talking about this parable and how odd it seems to us sometimes, is because we really don't understand the first century Jewish traditions that had to do with weddings. But they may have been something like this. The party starts at the groom's house. 
he and his buddies gather together along with his father. And as they're gathered there, they then make their way to the bride's house. And at the bride's house, the fathers, the father of the bride and the groom, haggle with each other about how much the bride's family has to give in order to take in order for the groom's family to take her off their hands. Or the groom truly loves her and says to his father, keep the price down because I don't want to lose her. But there could be a delay. The fathers could be having difficulty uh, haggling and figuring it all out. When they finally leave the bride's house, and in this case at midnight, symbolizing another day, another age, The cry goes out, and the party all moves back to the groom's house where the the actual party itself takes place and where people are invited to be part of the festivities. It's the one thing you don't want to miss if you're part of a wedding. So there are these ten young unmarried women waiting for the announcement that the groom is headed back, and they carry torches. And the reason they carry torches is because there are no street lamps in that age, you couldn't see any any other way. There's no ambient light from lights from the houses around. Instead, they have these torches. They also fall asleep. Now, sometimes when Jesus tells a parable about the end, sleep is not a good thing. It means you're not being alert. But in this case, it makes no distinction between the foolish and the wise women in terms of whether they fall asleep or not. The sleep just says that it's been a long time. They're drowsy. They go to sleep. Nor are there reasons given for all the details. They're just part of the story as Jesus tells it. We don't know why the wise women can't share their oil with the foolish women. But there are several teachings that are very clear. There is a definite time when Jesus returns, and it will be clear to everyone. The cry wakes the young women up from their sleep. At midnight, there was a cry, here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. And it's very public. Everybody knows. Jesus tells the same sort of uh, story, or explains the same kind of story in other parables and scriptures that we see. So, for instance, in Matthew 24, verses 24 to 27, he says this, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I've told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Jesus' coming will be no secret for anyone on earth. Just a few verses later, Jesus reminds us again that this is going to be the case. Matthew 24, 30 to 31. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Not only will Jesus' coming be public, the door will be shut. It will be too late for some. So Jesus says in this parable, afterward the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open us. 
But he answered, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. So the foolish handmaids had run to the market to get more oil. They weren't prepared for the bridegroom's arrival. But by the time they get back, the door is shut and the groom will not open for them. Jesus actually tells a similar story in Luke chapter 13 where a master leaves and comes back. And this is what he says in verses 25 to 27. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. It appears that the foolish mains have assumed that they would be able to get into the party in the end. Maybe they presumed that for a long time. After all, there appeared to be nothing different between the wise women and the foolish women in their waiting. Who knows? Some of them may actually have been more excited about the festivities that were coming up and the party that was coming up than the wise ones were. The story reminds us of a passage Again, where Jesus is teaching in Matthew 7, and Jesus tells us the surprise of some who were busy doing actual ministry for Jesus and who were serving him ostensibly, but in his name. So Matthew 7, 21 to 23 says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And the words that Jesus speaks here take us by surprise. It slaps us with the reality that God knows every heart. He doesn't simply know everything that we've done. He doesn't know everything that we've spoken. He doesn't even know just everything that we thought, but that what's actually going on in our hearts themselves. He knows those who know him. And he's not mistaken about that. He wants to know whether we know him personally or whether we're just Jesus fans. God does judge between the two. For many of us, this may shake us up. In fact, it may lead us to a great grief in our lives. There's probably none of us who are here this morning that doesn't know somebody in their family that doesn't trust Christ in their lives. It may be a sibling, it may be a parent, it may be a child, and we struggle with grief. We wonder to ourselves, will I see that person in the coming age? Some of those people that we're worried about have openly professed their unbelief. And all we can do is pray that the gospel penetrates their hearts and that we would speak when we have the opportunity to do that. But some of those who don't know Jesus have grown up in the church. And maybe they still go to church. But their hearts don't belong to Jesus. They're going through the motions believing all the right things, doing all the right things, 
And we even defend the right things, but they don't actually know Jesus. Is there any comfort for us? There's some things that are mysterious about God's judgment and God's ways that we don't understand completely, but here are at least some things that we need to be thinking about. We need to pray and having willingness to share our hope in Jesus with them as he gives us opportunity to do that. We need to know that sometimes God has his plans and there could be other people who are actually maybe caregivers who are actually better and maybe more effectively at sharing the gospel with them than we are ourselves. We need to remember that we can't save anyone ourselves. It's always a miraculous work of grace that God works has already worked in our hearts and will work in other people's hearts, even as the Spirit works. And finally, we need to trust the goodness and justice of God. God does all things for his glory and for our good. I don't know how it works, but the promise is that there will be no more tears when Jesus returns and brings in the kingdom. Even with judgment, we will understand it all much better then than we possibly can now. But what we want for ourselves now is to know that we actually know him. And in this case, Jesus is speaking to a religious audience. These are Jews. They have the law. They have the expectation that the Messiah will come. They've practiced their religion. The lesson of the parable is to be prepared. The danger is that some will assume that they are prepared when they really aren't. Jesus is giving his listeners a warning. So what does it mean for us to be prepared? Ultimately, it's just simply receiving the gift of grace that God has given us in Jesus. It's not something we do or say or practice. It's knowing Jesus personally. That's the things that distinguish us. It's not an ideology. It's not a political position. It's not a moral stance. It's not correct theology. It's that personal relationship that we have with Jesus. Even thus, those of us who know Jesus can easily be persuaded that the things that we do will actually get us closer to him, that we will make ourselves more acceptable in certain ways. We can tend toward a self-confidence in what we do. We can do all the right things. We can read our Bibles and study them. We can pray. We can care for others. We can even share the gospel and go on mission trips. We can seek to be better people. But none of these will win acceptance into the wedding feast because it is only by grace that we are saved. And that comes through repentance through recognizing that day after day our hearts tend to be drawn to other things to draw our confidence in whether we know Jesus or not, rather than trusting in his righteousness that he's given us. In fact, all of those who know Jesus personally live a lifestyle of repentance because we all know how easy our hearts wander away. Tim Keller speaks of repentance in this way, and he he actually talks about three different groups of people. 
He says, Christ will do everything for you or nothing. He's either all of your righteousness or none. The irreligious don't repent at all. And the religious only repent of sins. But Christians repent of their wrongfully placed righteousness. That's the seeking and pursuing of God personally. As believers, we are continually handing our sins and our works of righteousness over to Jesus to be cleansed. And as we do that, we find ourselves set free to know him personally. And that has always been God's way for his people throughout all of time, whether they were in the Old Testament or the New Testament. Michael Williams talks about the people of Israel being very religious in the prophet Jeremiah's time. They follow the externals of the law, but they are still under judgment. He writes, the prophets indict the religion, do not, sorry, the prophets indict not religious form, but rather religion reduced to mere formalism. God wants our hearts, not our performance. And we need to remind ourselves daily of that. It is all by grace. It is Jesus' righteousness that protects us from God's holiness and is this day-by-day lifestyle that makes us prepared for his coming. This passage can be a sober, one that brings us to sobering thoughts. Could I be one of those who is simply taking the gospel for granted? I'm doing all the right things, believing all the right things, at least in my head, Do I have a relationship with Christ? Do I know him? The Bible tells us that we can be assured. We can know that we have a personal relationship with God. We can have the Holy Spirit saying within us, Abba, Father, to God, as he witnesses with our spirit that we belong to him, that we have an adoption as children of God. And this relationship can then become very personal for us, as it is for Paul, as we read This passage in in, uh, chapter 2 of Galatians, verse 20, we've already read it today as our assurance. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me personally and gave himself for me personally. For those who can say and affirm this in their lives, there is an assurance that we know Christ personally and that we will be part of the wedding feast. And there's great joy in that. Let's pause for a few moments of prayer. God, this morning we come to you and recognize that you have done all that there is necessary for us to be in a relationship with you. Lord, we pray that we would not take it for granted, that you would enable us to see how much we depend on you moment by moment and day by day. Lord, work this lifestyle of repentance within us. And Father, we also confess that our hearts do grieve for those that do do not know you. And Lord, we pray that you would give us opportunities, and those that don't know you would be, receive opportunities to know of your grace and give their lives to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.